Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for how wonderful and glorious and majestic you are. God, thank you that it is in you alone that our righteousness is found, in you alone that, that all of this life is about. God, you are the only one worthy of, of following after, the only one worthy of giving our lives for, God, the only one worthy of everything that we are. God, I pray that we would see that more and more and fall more and more in love with you. God, constantly bring us to our knees. Help us to remind ourselves of the gospel, to remind ourselves that it is by your grace alone that we are saved, by your grace alone that we can walk as people who have been changed, by your spirit alone that we are led by. King Jesus, make us new. Make us more like you. Change hearts like only you can. Continue to change my heart like only you can. Jesus, open up our, our eyes. Open up the eyes of our hearts as we dive into your word this morning. Help us to see your, your glory and your majesty. Help us to see your grace and praise you and worship you for that. God, I pray that we would leave this place more than when, when we came in. God, because of you, because of what you have done. King Jesus, make us more like yourself. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is really titled, Compelled by Love. So we just finished a series on four, um, four traits or marks of a disciple, right? Not that those four traits are the only four traits of a disciple, but those are four traits of what a disciple should look like um, as we are being disciples, as we are becoming more like Christ, as we are being saved, as we are being sanctified, we should look more and more like Jesus. So we should be able to faithfully proclaim Christ and his teachings. We should be able to obediently abide in Christ. We should have unity through love, and we should recognize the power, authority, and righteousness of Christ. Right? We should be able to do these things through his spirit leading us. Um, so we're going to kind of go a little different of a direction this morning. Um, next week we'll start a new series. Um, we're going to look at a text that's really focusing on love. So 2 Corinthians 5.14, right? The, the love of Christ compels us. Hopefully you guys know this, have gone over this. Uh, the students should know it well. This was the text at camp this year, so uh, it kind of got beat into their heads that week, right? So you guys should hopefully know this well. This is also uh, the first two verses, verses 14 and 15 is our uh, the youth group's memorization for the summer. So hopefully they've memorized it, right, Morgan? All right, she's good. All right, so 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, really talking about light, Christ's love compelling us. Um, a good story of being compelled to do things was often uh, my, my grandfather's righteous wrath. Um, I can remember oftentimes getting spanked. Um, I probably got spanked. Uh, almost every day, so for my life from zero to 18, so I got spanked quite often. I can remember one one time, one story, uh, my grandfather told me, I, I grew up with my grandparents, if you guys don't know, so that's the context of this. Uh, my grandfather told me to take the trash out before I went to bed. I was up 
upstairs doing some homework, being a faithful, a good student, um, like I was called to be, right? Not really. I was probably watching baseball or something. But um, And I did not take the trash out before I went to bed. That's right. So, so he waited until I was in a deep sleep, probably having a nice dream, um, getting rest for the next day, which was a school day, by the way, when all of a sudden I hear the door slam open, the lights turn on, and I look over at my clock, and it's midnight, exactly at midnight, and my grandfather comes in and says, all right, Zach, get up. First of all, you're taking the trash out. Next, you're washing all the dishes. Next, you're sweeping and mopping. Next, you're vacuuming the house. So at midnight till about 2 in the morning, that morning, I, I did all those things. Um, so so his, he was compelling me through a, a love, right? He definitely compelled me to do some things. And, and guess what? After that, I never forgot to take the trash out to take the trash out before I went to bed. So um, there's some compelling in that story, right? Um, so his righteous, loving wrath um, allowed me to don't, not forget to take the trash out. So uh, Madi can thank my grandfather that I am good at taking the trash out now because I don't want to be woken up at midnight again and clean the whole house. So there's a good story of compelling as we're going to move into this text on compelling. So before we go into verse 14, we kind of have to know the, the context of what Paul is writing about here. He's writing to the church in Corinth. This was a pretty messed up church, by the way. Um, if you don't believe me, go read the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Um, this church had a lot of issues, a lot of problems, um, much like most churches today, right? We are, are messy because we're people, we're sinful people, and, and we need this correction. We need uh, what Paul is writing here. To begin with, he starts off with really like what our future looks like after death. So as believers, we have a bright future after death, right? And then Paul moves into just kind of the urgency of the gospel message. He, he moves into the urgency of his mission. He says, therefore, in verse 11, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people, right? Paul is hitting on this urgency because we know what our future is after death, because we know how great and glorious God's kingdom is, there is an urgency to proclaiming the gospel, right? The gospel is not just this laid-back message. The gospel, there's urgency to that. We see that in Paul's mission. We see that, uh, that immediately after he surrenders his life to Christ, after he has this radical encounter with Jesus, after he's changed radically by Christ, we see this immediate preaching and proclamation of Christ and his teachings. We see immediate obedience in Christ. We see immediate immediate unity through love. And of course, that grew and grew throughout Paul's life. And we saw this immediate recognition of the power and authority and righteousness of Christ in Paul's life. And so he is telling us of this urgency. There is an urgency to go and share the gospel. And then there's a couple things as we move into this section that we must keep in mind. Verse 13, right before 14, he says, For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So Paul really has two motivations here for sharing the gospel. One is love for God, right? It is for God. And one is love for others. It is for you. Right, So Paul is really showing these two motivations and holding these before us, as Christ said, are the two greatest commandments, Right, that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourself. Right, We see these two greatest commandments, and Paul now holds this up to us as believers, saying these are these two motivations for sharing the gospel. Right, We don't share the gospel out of, out of anything else other than 
love for God and love for others. Right? And we see that as we move into verse 14. So let's read verse 14. For Baptist tradition compels us. No, that's not what it says. For self-interest compels us. It's not what it says either. For guilty consciences compel us. It's not what it says either. For the love of Christ compels us. Right? It is love, the love of Jesus, the love that Christ showed for us, that compels us to do these things, that compel us to love others and to love God. Right? We don't, we don't come loving God out of any other motivation than the fact that Jesus loved us first. We don't come loving others out of any other motivation than the fact that Jesus loved us first. Any, any other kind of love other than the love that Christ brings is, is a selfish love of what I can get. Right? Think about it. If, if Christ's love does not change us, then every motivation that we have out of love is, is only for ourselves. So then marriage becomes about what I can get out of it. So then every, every business relationship becomes out of what I can get for it. Every friendship becomes out of what I can get for it. And that's what our, that's what our motivation is without, aside from the love of Christ. There's no motivation of true love for God and true love for others. It is the love of Christ which compels us. It is Jesus' love that makes the believer seek the glory of God and proclaim the gospel. There's no other motivation other than this, this crazy, radical love that Jesus has for us. The fact that he would, he would come down from his throne, put himself in our situation, come as fully man, go through every trial and temptation that we did, overcame all of them, go through suffering, intense suffering, intense grief, intense pain, to the point where he sweated blood. He would face the cup of God's wrath and drink it all to the dregs for us. And he would, he would spend three days in the grave and rise again and conquer Satan's sin and death. There's nothing, nothing else besides that. that that's crazy love, right? There's no other, no other greater show of love. The love of Christ compels us, and this is why we proclaim the gospel. This is why we have the motivation to love God and to love others. These are the things that should motivate us. We now want to please God and not man. This should be the, the life's call of a believer. I want to please God. I want to love God well. I want to love others well because the love of Christ compels me. That word compels is kind of an interesting word. The, the Greek word literally means to be squeezed or to be pressed together. Right? So, so because I like food, I like to use a lot of uh, food analogies. And so think about it today when you go to lunch and you go get that burger and that plate of fries and you get that ketchup bottle and you open it up and you squeeze it, you compel it, the ketchup's going to come out, right? The ketchup, as you squeeze that, the ketchup doesn't have a mind of its own to say, no, I think I'll stay in here. Right? You squeeze it, you compel that ketchup, and it comes out and, and you have ketchup to go with perfect fries. Right? That's the same idea. That's the same idea that, that Paul is using here. That the love of Christ is so great, it's so radical, it's, it's so overwhelming, that it, it compels us, it squeezes us, it literally makes us go out and proclaim the gospel and love others and love God well with, without any other choice. 
The love of Christ is so great and grand that it compels us, it squeezes us, it presses us together, and we go and proclaim the gospel because we have no other choice because of how great and grand Jesus' love is. Think of, look at it like this. Charles Spurgeon, when he, when he was preaching on this text, um, quoted this. Right? Our lives should look completely different because of the love of Christ, because we've been changed. This is kind of a long quote, um, but follow along here. When preaching through this text and, and talking about the change that that love brings, Charles Spurgeon says this, Do you not think that a life spent for Jesus only is far more worth looking back upon the, at the last than any other? If you call yourselves Christians, how will you judge a life spent in making money? It cannot be very much longer before you must gather up your feet in the bed and resign your soul to God. Now suppose sitting in your chamber, all alone, making out the final balance sheet of your stewardship, how will it look if you have to confess, I've been a Christian professor, my conduct outwardly decent and respectable, my chief purchase, but my chief purpose was not my master's glory. I have lived with the view of scraping together so many thousands, and I have done it. Would you like to fall asleep and die with that as the consummation of your life? Or shall it be, I've lived to hold up my head in society and pay my way and leave a little for my family? Will that satisfy you as your last reflection? Brethren, we are not saved by our works, but I'm speaking now upon the consolation which a man can derive from looking back upon his life. Suppose he shall have felt the power of my text, talking about 2 Corinthians 5.14, and shall be able to say, I've been enabled by the grace of God, to which I give all the glory, to consecrate my entire being to the entire glorification of my Lord and Master. And whatever my mistakes, and they are many, and my wanderings and failures, and they are countless, yet the love of Christ has constrained me, for I judged myself to have died in him, and therefore I have lived to him. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Why, I think it were worthwhile so to die. To be constrained by the love of Christ creates a heroic life, exalted, illustrious. No, I must come down from such lofty words. It is such a life as every Christian ought to live. It is such a life as every Christian must live if he is really constrained by the love of Christ. For the text does not say the love of Christ ought to constrain us. It declares that it does constrain us. Men and brethren, if it does not constrain you, judge yourselves that you be not judged and found wanting at the last. God grant we may feel the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Right. So what Spurgeon is, is saying here is, is the love of Christ isn't like, this isn't this some uh, thing that Paul says, it might constrain you, or it probably should constrain you. No, if we're in Christ... It does constrain us. It does compel us to go and make much of Jesus. It does compel us to love God and to love others. The love of Christ is that great. And so, so we have to, to have some introspection and look within ourselves and say, am, am I loving God like he has called me to? And am I loving others like he has called me to? And is my proclamation of Christ an everyday, every moment thing? If it's not, then maybe I have not been compelled or constrained or squeezed or pressed together by the love of Christ. Maybe I've truly not experienced the love of Christ. For the love of Christ compels us. Let's go on. For the love of Christ compels us. Why does it compel us? 
since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. Right? So Jesus showed the greatest act of love ever on the cross by taking all of his sins, all of our sins upon himself. Right? Jesus took every, every drop, every ounce of sin, every sin that you have committed, every sin you will commit upon himself and died. If one died for all, then all died. Another way of explaining this, uh, if we look in the book of Romans, right, it talks about how Adam's sin, the sin of one man, brought sin to all of us, right? And death was the result of that. So through one man's sin, Adam, right, we now are infected with sin. We are dead in sin. And yet Jesus came, and as the greater Adam, we can point to someone who's, who is the greater Adam, Jesus, but instead of bringing death to all, took the place of all. Right? He took our place. He took my place. He took your place as he nailed our sins to the cross. The greatest love act ever performed. Right? The greatest love ever shown on the cross as, as he, Jesus, spilt his blood, as he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. So that love must compel us for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion if one died for all then all died let's go on verse 15 and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised so so what we have to look at first a lot of universalists people who believe that everyone is going to heaven uh, like to use this verse we have to look in context again the next verse he died for all so that those who live Right? So this does not mean that everyone is, is saved. Right? We can know that throughout Scripture. And then especially as we look there, that phrase, those who live. So if there are those who live, that implies there are those who died as well. Right? There are some who will not follow Christ. We know that, that the, the gate is broad and, and uh, many will go through that gate. Right? We know that. And so, so Scripture tells us that he died for all so that those who live... Right, So those who are in Christ, those who have been changed by Christ, those who have been made new, those who have been redeemed, no longer, let's keep going, live for themselves, right? but for the one who died for them and was raised, for Christ. So now as followers of Jesus, right, we are not saved and then left there. to say, And Jesus did not say, okay, now go and do what you want. Go and follow your dreams. Go and follow your heart. Go and pursue money. Pursue the, your dream career. Pursue the American dream. Jesus never said any of those things. We, in fact, we are called to do the opposite of that. To not go and live for ourselves. To not go and build all we can. But we are called to live for the one who died for us and was raised. And this looks completely different. This is completely countercultural. Christian, we were never called to be relevant to culture. We hear that too often in the Christian circle. We were never called to be relevant to culture. We were called to be weird, to be completely different. The disciples were not looking to be relevant to culture as they were getting whipped and beaten in public. Peter was not looking to be relevant to culture and to follow the American dream as he was hung upside down on a cross. Bartholomew was not looking to be relevant to culture and not following his dreams and following his heart as he was getting sawed in half for the sake of Christ. John was, or James was not looking to be relevant to culture and to follow the American dream as his head was being chopped off. That's, that was never our call, Christian. 
It's never our call to build our own kingdom, but to live for the one who died for us and was raised. So this, this is completely different from what culture. This means we strive to, glory, to bring glory to God first rather than ourselves. We strive to serve God first rather than ourselves. And we strive to love God first rather than ourselves. And it's real easy to say. It is very easy for me to say, oh yeah, I bring glory to God first, to serve God first, love God first. But it's completely, a completely different thing to do when I look at, at what my life is about, as, as Charles Spurgeon says, as we, as we measure that balance sheet of our life. Do we bring glory to God first? Think about the, the things that we talk about at our family gatherings, right? Who do, who do most of our conversations tend to focus on? Ourselves. The things we post on social media, the things we talk about and brag about to our friends, the things we talk about at work. What, is, what does that say about us? Does, if we were to take all of those conversations and put them on a balance sheet, would it say, God is awesome and I'm bringing glory to him? Or would it say, Zach is awesome and I'm bringing glory to him? If we, were to, if we were to look at serving God first, where, where does most of our time and our energy and our money go? If I were to take a balance sheet of my bank account and, and my time and my efforts, where does, where does most of that lie? Does it say that I'm serving God first or does it say that I'm serving Zach first? And we strive to love God first rather than ourselves. Think about the things that captivate your heart the things that motivate you to do what you do, the things that we find ourselves daydreaming about, the the things that we find ourselves thinking about the most, those tend to be what we love. Would it say I love Jesus first? Or would it say I love Zach first? We have to to take these things into account as as Spurgeon challenges us to do to make sure we are striving to bring glory to God first rather than ourselves because we're new. We're no longer called to live for ourselves, but for Christ who died for us and was raised. Are we striving to serve God first rather than ourselves? And are we striving to love God first rather than ourselves? Let's go on. Verse 16. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. So because we've been changed, because our focus is no longer on ourselves, because we are not living for ourselves, because we are living for Christ, side note, Jesus does not need any one of us, by the way, right? Jesus is not saying, or Paul is not saying we need to live for Christ because he needs us. He does not need us, but he wants us. He desires relationship with us. And that is our created purpose to live for him. So now we no longer see anyone from a worldly perspective. Right? In other words, I don't see someone at my workplace as a, as a stepping stone to get to the next level. Right? No longer do I see my spouse as as someone who can just give me what I want. No longer do we see kids as as people who are things that give us what we want. No longer do we see colleagues or family members or friends as just people to be used from a worldly perspective. We see people as souls, as people who are going to either a literal hell or a literal heaven who Christ died for and and deeply loves and desires. We do not see people from a worldly perspective. We must see people as people who Jesus deeply, deeply cares for. 
And then Paul says, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Right? Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He isn't just a, just a prophet with some good ideas. He isn't just a, a moral guy. Right? In, fact, in fact, most religions believe that. I mean, believe it or not, Islam believes that, that Jesus was a really good prophet. And they respect a lot of his teachings. Right? I know, I know people who have no desire to follow Jesus, but they think Jesus was a really awesome guy and in some really awesome teachings. But we either believe as Christians that Jesus is it, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is, has all authority and power, or we, we throw it away and say Jesus is nothing, right? C.S. Lewis, I think, sums it up best when he says, there are really only three ways to see Christ. You either see him as, you either see him as liar, lunatic, or Lord. Right? We cannot just say that Jesus was a good teacher because of some of the radical things that he said, like, I and the Father are one, like, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, right? Jesus claiming to be all these things, Jesus claiming to, to forgive sins. So we either take Jesus as a liar, right? We either say, Jesus, I'm seeing him from a worldly perspective, and he was a liar, and, and he, uh, the things that he said were, were just lies about himself. He was just trying to deceive the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was trying to deceive the people and get a following, right? So Jesus was either a liar or he was a lunatic, right? Maybe Jesus just thought he was, uh, thought he was something that he was not, and he was just crazy and said some crazy things, or Jesus is Lord, and Christian, we have to decide those things. Jesus cannot just be a good teacher. Jesus cannot just be something we put in a box and say, I'm going to give this time on Sunday morning and maybe some time on Wednesday night for Christ. He's either a, a complete liar, a complete lunatic, or he is Lord and we must give all of our lives to and must follow after. If he's Lord, then he's king. He is, he is king of the universe. He is king of you and I. He is our Savior. He is Messiah. He's the only one worth following after. And He must determine everything we do. So we do not see Christ from a worldly perspective. We no longer know Him in this way. Let's go on. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so because we see Jesus, right? Let's look at what that therefore is there for. Um, because we see Christ from not a worldly perspective, but as Lord, as King of the universe, because we see people, not as people to be used, but as souls who Christ loves. We see, we have this new vision, this new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are new. Good news, we can be in Christ, right? We, we know that from that phrase, if anyone is in Christ. Right, Jesus, Jesus is not just some God who stands on this mountaintop and says, try to get to me. He's not just some distant God that we're shouting at the ceiling for. Right? He's not just some, some king off in a distant land who we never see. Right? He came to this earth. He came down to our poor and helpless estate and conquered Satan, sin, and death for us and loves us and he is with us. If we believe the Great Commission, he will never leave us. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. There's never a moment, Christian, where Christ is not with you, where Christ is not leading you and guiding you, where Christ is not in control of your life. There's never a moment where he is not the captain of your ship. There's never a moment where he is not the one directing your life, even through suffering, even through trials, even through pain. 
Christ is in control. Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian, can we see that as Job saw it through his suffering and said, I used to know God by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees him. Can we proclaim those words? Do we see Jesus' beauty and glory even through the pain and suffering? We are new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Right? Notice Paul didn't just say you're a better version of yourself. Right? Jesus didn't just come to die so that you could act well in a church building, so that you could sit down in a pew and behave yourself and not ask to go to the bathroom and never cuss and never drink and, and never do those things. Right? Jesus didn't die for that. Jesus didn't just die to make you a better version of you. Jesus didn't die to come and, and make sure you have the power to go and fulfill all your dreams and make sure that you have your best life now. Jesus did not die for those things. Jesus died to make you a completely new person. You're not just a better version of yourself. You're completely new. No longer, it's no longer Zach in me. It's no longer Zach living, but Christ. I have died to Christ. And it is Christ living in me, making me new constantly. Therefore, my identity, Christian, our identity is no longer in what, in ourselves. It's no longer in what we look like. It's no longer in what we wear, in what we act like, in how good or righteous we can be. It's no longer in what your profession is or how much money you make or how big your house is or how big your truck is. That's no longer our identity. Our identity is in Christ and Christ alone and what he has done. Our identity is never meant to be found because we're new creations in what we can do, but in what Christ can do and what Christ has done and he is doing in our lives. That's where our identity must be found in. Because we will fail and we will mess up. Jesus never will. Our identity must be found in Christ. We are new. The old has passed away and see the new has come. I love how Bill Connors explains this. Bill Connors is a pastor up in the northern part of the state. The work of Jesus is not to make bad people better or sad people happier. Right? Jesus didn't just come to make you your life happy rainbow sunshine jesus didn't just come to to make you look a little better on the outside he came to make dead people alive right jesus came to make us dead in our sin walking zombies alive in christ through his sacrifice through his bloodshed on the cross through his conquering of satan sin and death as he rose from the grave through his his rulership and his kingship through his spirit leading us he makes us alive in him God is completely in control. Let's go to verse 18. Everything is from God, right? God's completely in control. There's not a single place on this earth, there's not a single place in creation which Christ does not say mine, right? Stop talking. I'm, I'm, I don't want to go on a, a rant, but stop talking about this is a, a holy place. This whole earth is Christ's. Christ rules and reigns, not just in this building. But everywhere we go, but every single square inch of this earth, Jesus is in control. Jesus has all authority and all power over heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him. Jesus is in control of all. Jesus is it. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus has done all the work. He's done all the work of reconciliation by himself. Let's read quickly Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. I know Brian read it this morning. We're going to read it again. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. This should make our hearts, Christian, just scream for joy. We should weep over these words. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith and this not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. It's Christ alone. He's the one who does the work of reconciliation. And now we get to be a part of that. We see that in, uh, of course, at the end of that, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Then verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Again, Jesus does not need us, but he chooses to use us. We get to be, that is, that is uh, the, the highest honor that we can have. We get to be a part of the message of reconciliation. We get to proclaim the gospel. We get to point people to Jesus, not just as pastors and missionaries, but as followers of Jesus, as the redeemed, as those who have been changed and bought by Christ. We get to proclaim this, men, this message of, of reconciliation, that Jesus is it. And Christians, so often we're distracted from this. Right? So often I'm distracted from this. Because we're quick to talk about things. We're quick to talk about our favorite athlete or our favorite financial guru or our favorite theologian or our favorite insurance agent or our favorite musician or the weather. We're quick to talk about our possessions and our careers. We're, talk to, we're quick to talk about our kids and our spouses. We're so often slow to talk about Jesus. Right? Too often we use the, the excuse, oh, I need to build a relationship with this person, and, and then maybe eventually we'll get to Jesus. Yet those people that we're quick to, that we're slow to build relationships with and slow to talk to Jesus about, we're quick to talk and brag about our jobs or, or how much money we make or our favorite uh, athlete or our favorite whatever. And yet so slow, slow, slow to proclaim the thing that we are called to proclaim, the gospel message, the message that Jesus has died and has offered new life. The greatest message we could ever proclaim, and we are so often so slow to talk about that. I'm so often so slow to talk about that, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim what I've been called, what you as a follower of Jesus have been called to do. This, this reconciliation that Jesus does by himself. And we, of course, we have to know what we're proclaiming. We have to know that it is Christ, that Jesus does all the work, that we don't bring anything to the table, that Jesus is it, that Jesus has done all of the saving work for us. I think one of my, this is, this is, uh, said well, I think, in Genesis 15. This is one of my favorite stories in all of the, the Old Testament as God is making this covenant with Abraham. Um, and, he, and he's telling Abraham, look at the stars of the sky, and that's as many as your descendants will be. And, and God is starting to make this covenant. And all of a sudden, um, Abraham, Abraham has this vision. 
And we have to know kind of Jewish culture. We have to know culture back then when, when someone would make a covenant, right? He saw this vision of this, of this, uh, this ditch and God told him to go get these animals, a cow, a goat, lamb, some birds, chop them in half, put them on each side and the blood would flow down into this ditch. And so culture back then is when someone would make a blood covenant with each other, they would walk together through this, this ditch and the blood, as the blood was spilling down from these animals, would, would stain their sandals and their tassels, right? And what they were signifying is, is if I, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, then the, my blood, I'll pay with my blood. And the other person is saying, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, then I'll pay with my blood. And so they would go together through this ditch. And what's even greater than that is oftentimes kings would do this with servants and the servant would walk alone by himself through this ditch because it was just, it was just known that the king would, would keep his word. So the king would not even have to go through. And so as Abraham is, is seeing this vision and he's looking at this ditch and this blood of these animals is running down, God comes down uh, with a, a flaming torch and a firing pot, right? And he goes through alone. He tells Abraham to wait. Abraham does not go through that. And God goes through this ditch alone. And what God is signifying is, Abraham, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, then I'll pay with my blood. But Abraham, if you don't keep your side of the covenant, then I'll also pay with my blood. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because we have not kept our side of the covenant. We sin constantly. We do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. We do not hunger and thirst for God. But he keeps our side of the covenant for us. As he spilt his blood and paid with his blood on the cross. What a beautiful picture of the gospel in Genesis 15 as God goes through this ditch alone and tells Abraham to wait. And we, as Abraham's descendants, as followers of Jesus, do not have to reconcile ourselves because we can't. We do not reconcile ourselves to God. Jesus does. Jesus does the work of reconciliation. Let's go on to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. If you are an ambassador for the United States, you represent the United States to a foreign nation. As followers of Jesus, we represent something much greater than a flag or a nation. We represent the kingdom of God. And we are ambassadors for Christ in a foreign nation. The United States, Christian, is not our home. This world is not our home. We are in a foreign nation as ambassadors for Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom of God, making much of Jesus in this foreign nation. This is not our home. This place will end. God's kingdom never, ever will. And we are ambassadors for that. I love the word Paul uses there. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The message of the gospel is not one of, hey, you should come and hear our preacher. Or, hey, you should come and, and come to church sometime. Or, hey, you should, you should maybe think about uh, reading the Bible sometime, right? This is a message of pleading. As, as Paul is talking about the urgency of the gospel here, the, the idea is one of, please come to know God, because he's the only way to true life. He's the only way to, to have any life. He has died for you and has offered a way to have your sins forgiven, has offered a way to give you new life. This is a message of pleading. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. 
And we'll finish up with verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we could sum up the gospel in four words, I think a great phrase would be Jesus in my place. Jesus took our place. Jesus became sin for us, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Scripture, and and specifically in, in this text, there's really three transfers we see. The first is Adam's sin transferred to us. Right? We, we tend to complain about that one and think that's so unfair. Like, oh, Adam's sin, now we all have to suffer with sin. Right? So Adam's sin is transferred to us. If we think that one's unfair, wait till we get to the third one. The second one is our sin to Christ. Right? Jesus, who didn't know any sin, all my sin gets put upon him on the cross. And he takes all of that for me. That's not fair. And the third one is Jesus' righteousness to us. That is definitely not fair. We want to complain about how life isn't fair. It's not. If God was fair, we'd all suffer and burn in hell. But Jesus has offered a way and made a way for us. And so our sin gets put on Christ, and Christ clothes us in his righteous robes, and we are made new. So God looks at us and no longer sees us as us. But as Christ covering us and, and our righteous, us becoming the righteousness of God because of Christ. This is the, the greatest superhero story ever told. Our, our culture is, is pretty consumed with superhero stories. We're looking for a hero. We're looking for that, that person that we can look up to. You see, in many superhero stories, we see the superhero die for the good guys or the innocent people. This is a much better story. This is where the, the superhero dies for the villains. Us as rebels who need to lay down our arms at the foot of the cross, as C.S. Lewis tells us, are lost, and we are enemies of God, and we must be reconciled to God. And the hero died for us, Jesus, and he rose again, and now his completed work exists for us. And he offers new life. Christian, that's the gospel message that we get to proclaim. Go and proclaim that well this week. Let's pray. Lord, God, change me. Jesus, forgive me for so often not being focused on on that message of reconciliation, for so often not being an ambassador for you, for so often failing to proclaim the gospel. Forgive me, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that it's not up to me. That you have already done all of the saving work. You've already forgiven even the times that I would fail to share your word. You've forgiven all of that on the cross. God, my sin was transferred to you. And your righteousness was transferred to me. Thank you. God, I pray that we would see that. We'd remind ourselves of that daily. We constantly desire to be made new. Jesus, change us. Change me. Change this heart. God, make us more like yourself. Thank you so much for your grace and your glory and that love that was shown on the cross, that love that compels us to go and proclaim the gospel well. In Jesus' name, amen.